So are sinners made right with God because of what God does for sinners? Or are sinners made right with God because of what sinners do for God? Or, or is it a mix of the two? You know, does God help those who help themselves? You do your part and God does his part. Kind of the prevalent way of thinking in the world today is you can be forgiven of your sin. You can have heaven and everlasting life if you just live a decent kind of life. Just be decently good and decently nice and kind to other people. And God reserves hell for only the worst of people. And then religions teach that, well, you, you, you need the grace of God to, to save you or to help save you. But then for you to complete it, for you to be truly saved and for you to stay saved, then, then here's a list of the things that you've got to add to that grace so that you can be saved or continue to be saved. And depending on the group you're talking to, the, the checklist is different, right, from group to group. It's get baptized or or be confirmed, or join a church, or, or whatever the case may be. But since we said last week in this sermon series we're in called Sol, uh, The Five Solas, last week we said that Scripture is our final authority for what we believe and for, for how we live. And so the question is then, when it comes to how are sinners made right with God, what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say? So we want to turn our hearts there today, Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible today, Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Ephesians 2. Let me introduce you to it. We'll back out of it, and then we'll run back into it here in a little bit, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody may boast. Ephesians chapter 2 provides, I think, a really good overview for what we want to talk about today, which is, yes, salvation is by grace alone. This is what the reformers 500 years ago that we talked about last Sunday and what Luther were proclaiming, that it is by grace alone that we're saved. Before we dive into Ephesians 2, I want to bounce to the Old Testament. And I want to share with you one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. And, and if you've been around me for some time, you've heard me tell this story out of the Old Testament. If you've been around me for a long time, you've heard me tell this story more than once out of the Old Testament. But the story never changes, and I need to go back to it so many times. It's a beautiful story. It's a story about a king. And this king's desire to show grace to somebody that had not earned it, somebody that had not merited it, somebody that did not deserve it. By the way, if you have to earn it, then it's not grace. If you have to work for it, then it's not grace. So let me take you to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. And it says, Jonathan, son of Saul. Now, Saul is the king of Israel. He was the first king over Israel. And Jonathan is his son. So this is the king. This is the prince. And Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son. So now we've got three generations of royalty right there in the first handful of words, right? Saul, his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan has a son who was lame in both feet. More about that in a moment. And the Bible says this son of Jonathan's was five years old. 
when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Now the news that comes to this little five-year-old boy on this day is your grandfather, the king, is dead. And not only is he dead, but his son, your father, Jonathan, he's also dead. Now this five-year-old little boy, he would be the next in line then to the throne, right? Except only that's not the case now because there's a new family that's ascending to the throne. And as was normal in that day and time, when there was a change in leadership like that, any of the descendants from the former ruling family, they were killed to try to keep down the threat of anybody coming back and trying to recapture the throne later down the road. And so suddenly on this day, this five-year-old little boy, just like that, becomes an enemy to the nation of Israel. He becomes an enemy to King David. He's lost his dad, lost his grandfather, and now he's marked out, you would think, to die as well. And it gets worse. Verse 4 continues on and says, his nurse picked him up and fled. She's trying to save his life. She knows what he's marked out for now. She picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. Apparently some type of spinal cord injury, perhaps. This explains what was said earlier at the beginning of verse 4. He was lame and both of his feet. And as if all of the happenings of that day aren't enough, his name was Mephibosheth. Poor kid. Now that's a bad day for anybody, especially a bad day for a five-year-old. That your dad and your granddad, both gone. The one person that cares about you, who wants to rescue you, drops you. You're never going to walk again. But this new king, he wasn't like the other kings of the earth, Jada. This king was different. This king didn't have murder on his heart. He had kindness on his heart. He had grace, mercy on his heart. In fact, God says about this king, this king is a man after my own heart. He's different from the rest. And this king's name is David. David settles in there to becoming the leader over God's people. God's hand is on David, and therefore God's hand is on that nation, and the nation prospers. Militarily, they're strong. Geographically, they're expanding. Economically, they're prospering. They're having good days. And we're going to turn the pages in our Bible a few pages to chapter 9. Now, you only turned a few pages, but you just passed through 20 years of history. In those 20 years, David has grown as a leader. The nation has prospered. And in those 20 years, this little five-year-old boy named Mephibosheth, he's now 25. He's made it. He survived because he's been hiding out all this time, really as a fugitive, for 20 years. We pick up the story in chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Now, when David says that, probably before he even gets that phrase out of his mouth, the the soldiers around him, they spring into action thinking, okay, he's heard whispers. There's somebody left in Saul's household. The the king, David, he's he's getting paranoid, right? He wants to find out who's left. Who who, who, Who do I need to go kill? right? Who needs to die today? And so those soldiers, boy, they're ready. They're ready to go to battle, but that's not what David has on his mind. 
He said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? The word is chesed in the Hebrew. It's the same word for grace. Anybody that I can show grace to for Jonathan's sake. In verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. They said, if anybody would know about Saul's family, if anybody's loved, it would be this guy. And so they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. And the king asked him, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. I think that's Ziba's sort of way of saying, don't waste your time. He can't, he's not going to be able to fight for you. He's not going to work fields for you. It's just really not worth your time. But King David's not deterred. He says, where is he? I, I, I didn't really want to see his resume. I, I just want to know on the GPS where I could find him. So where is he? And Ziba answered, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar means dry, barren place. He just says this crippled guy is living in the middle of nowhere. This is kind of the second time I think that Ziba is looking at the king going, he's really not worth your time. He's got no crops to bring you. He's got no livestock to bring you. He's got nothing but dust. Where he's living is really not worth your time. But King David's not going to be stopped. The Bible says King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir from the son of Amiel. Can you imagine that day? Here's Mephibosheth, he's 25 years old. He's been a fugitive his entire life, living in this shack in the middle of nowhere. And then on this day, he hears it. And he peeks out the door and there's this dust cloud rising up over the horizon. And he recognizes this convoy, it's royalty. He knows they've been sent from the king. Heart pounding, sweating, I mean, panic attack full on. He knows this is it. They found out about me. They're coming to kill me. But that's not what David had in his mind. Instead, they put him in the chariot and they take him to Jerusalem. He hasn't seen it in 20 years, right? He's having probably memories and flashbacks of, I remember that place. Now, that smell, that sound, it's all kind of coming back to him. And verse 6 says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. That's a, that's a good move, y'all. If you ever think somebody's about to kill you, just bow down, pay him honor, play possum, do something. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, and David said, don't be afraid. Now, why do you suppose David said, don't be afraid? Because Mephibosheth looked afraid. He did not want to be there in that place. But this king of grace said, don't be afraid. That's what gracious kings say. The most repeated command of Jesus in the New Testament is, don't be afraid. He said, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, for I will surely show you kindness or grace for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. That's a lot of land I'm imagining, right? His grandfather was the king and he just got all the property back. But then he says this to him, but you're gonna always eat at my table. At the palace, in the dining room, the royal food, you're gonna eat at my table. And Mephibosheth, verse 5, bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. I'd love to see Ziba's face right there in that moment, right? Like, you did what? And you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Where to do what? (laughs) 
and bring in the crop so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Second time he said that phrase. He's always going to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Third time he's used that phrase. He ate at the king's table. Watch this. Like one of the king's sons. He's in. He's in. He's in the family He's royalty now, right? And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He didn't live in Lodabar anymore. He lives in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the palace is. That's his new home. Because he always, here's the fourth time it says it. He always ate at the king's table. Breakfast, brunch, lunch, drunch. Dinner, I want my lucky charms at 10.30 at night. You know what I'm saying? This is what his experience was constantly. And I love how it says at the end, and he was lame in both feet. Others would have still said he wasn't worth it. But grace doesn't look for worth or value or what's been earned or worked for. If it's based on worthiness or value or merit, then it's not grace. Can you imagine those days in the palace dining room, this door opens up and it's like pomp and circumstances playing in the background. And this man comes walking out with this flowing robe and weird hat on and he's all lost in thought. His name's Solomon, right? Future king, son of David. Another door opens up and this dude walks in looking like Jason Momoa. I mean, he's ripped, he's a warrior, he's got long hair, no balding whatsoever. Sorry, sap. And he walks in and like, man, this is somebody. Yeah, he's the son of David, right? You're not going to mess with that guy. And then this door opens up and it's like Miss Universe walks in. I mean, she's got the wave and she's, she's got everything. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's like, oh my gosh, she's somebody. Yeah, she's the princess. And then this door creaks open, but you don't see anybody. You're trying to figure out what's going on. You hear this strange noise getting closer to the table. And so you sit up a little taller and you peer over there. And there's this man on the floor. And he's scooting on the floor toward the table. And you're thinking, who is this guy? Who let this guy in? Where's the security right now? Do, Do they just like let this guy slip through? What's happening here? But he doesn't look concerned. He keeps scooting closer to the table. And then he gets to the table and he pushes himself up and he takes his seat. And then the tablecloth of the king's grace covers up his legs. And you realize who he is. He's royalty now too. He has a place at the table now too because this king is a king of grace. Listen, what King David did for Mephibosheth was gracious by man's standards. But I'm telling you today what King Jesus did for me is well past man's standards for what grace really is. King Jesus' grace toward me is unimaginable. His grace toward me is immeasurable. And I want to take a minute this morning and I want to show you five ways that the grace of Jesus is greater than even the grace of King David. Number one, the grace of God stretches wider. 
It stretches wider. David offered grace to one man, but Jesus is offering grace to many. Even in this room today, I believe he is offering grace to somebody in this place today. Salvation being offered to somebody today. Mercy and grace being offered to somebody today. Forgiveness being offered to somebody today. A new start being offered to somebody in this place today because the grace of King Jesus, it stretches wider than even the grace of King David. Secondly, the grace of God reaches deeper. The grace of God reaches deeper. King David's grace only reached to somebody that had physical limitations, but the grace of King Jesus reaches to those of us who are spiritually dead. We're dead. Let's go to Ephesians 2. I told you we'd go to Ephesians 2. Now we're going there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible doesn't say you were weak. It doesn't say you were lazy. It doesn't say you were half-hearted. It doesn't say you were dying spiritually. It says you are dead. You're dead. Listen, the whole world is one big cemetery of dead people and every tombstone says the same thing about every human being dead in trespasses and in sin. This is why it's important for you to know that, for me to know that today, because dead people can't do anything to save themselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Your only hope is the grace of God. You aren't, listen to me today, if you're without Christ today, you aren't drowning in your sin, you have drowned. You're dead. You can't so much as hold up your hand to call on him to save you today apart from his grace. We're dead in our sin. The Bible's clear about that, but being spiritually dead doesn't mean that we're inactive. No, the Bible says you're quite active, actually, in your spiritual deadness. You are in active and open rebellion to a holy and righteous God. You continue on day after day, despising him and shaking your fist in his face. And here's what I wanna say, number three. See, the grace of God stoops lower. The grace of God stoops lower. See, King David's grace stoops to a refugee. But King Jesus' grace stoops to rebels like me and you. It's understandable that a king would show kindness to a five-year-old boy, later 25-year-old man. It's understandable that somebody would look on that situation and think about what had happened in his life, what had happened to his family, what had happened to his body. It's understandable to think that somebody would show pity there and do something on behalf of that person. But before Jesus, you and I are not wounded, misfortunate orphans. Before Jesus, we are his enemies. Before Jesus, we are rebels against his way and against his kingdom. Look at Ephesians 2 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were walking away from God, despising God, back to God, walking from him. What? Following the course of this world. You were going the wrong direction, pursuing that, following the prince of the power there. That's Satan. That's where your heart is. That's where your passion is. That's where your allegiance is. That's the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen, you and I were born in Adam, born as enemies of God. And we're living as enemies of God apart from Christ. Listen, we're not sinners because we sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's who you are. There's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to change what you are. You're dead in your sin. There's nothing you can do to change that. That's a bleak picture. But I'm telling you today, the grace of Jesus is greater than the grace of King David. The grace of Jesus is stretching wider and reaching deeper, stooping lower. And the grace of Jesus comes closer. David sent messengers. Jesus didn't send a messenger to tell of his grace. Jesus himself came to offer his grace. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that even though he was God, very God, he humbled himself, put on flesh, took the role of a bondservant, and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Romans 5, 8 says that even while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. When we were sinners, when we were dead, when we were his enemies, when we were rebellious toward him and to his ways, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. This is resurrection language. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sins. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus didn't just send somebody to do this for him. He himself came to deliver this grace, to offer this grace. He did this himself. Why? That you and I might be saved from sin, that we might be forgiven, that we might be adopted, that you and I might have a seat at his table forever. See, I'm telling you, Jesus' grace, I love that story in the Old Testament. And for a long time, I thought, man, that is just like the grace of God. But the older I get, the more I study God's word, it falls short. The grace of Jesus is far greater. Stretches wider, reaches deeper, stoops lower, comes closer. Number five, it lasts longer. Lasts longer. See, David's grace provided some rehabilitation for somebody at the physical level. But what King Jesus does is he provides much more than rehabilitation, Don. He provides total resurrection from death to life. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 4. Verses 1 and 3 have said, you're dead. You're dirty, rotten, stinking, filthy, rebellious sinners destined for the wrath of God. Verse four says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Watch, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. There's resurrection language. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seated us in the heavenly places. Listen, Jeremiah, I've already been resurrected. I know we talk about, I look forward to the day I get resurrected and I get a new body. Yeah, that's fine and well, but the most important resurrection for me has already happened. He's already raised me by his grace. I've been delivered, I've been forgiven, I've been adopted, I've been set free. I've already been seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. There's already a name tag on the table that has my name on it. I get to eat every meal at his table forever because he's my king. The grace of God has done that. The grace of God alone has forgiven me of my sin. The wrath and death that was headed for me, now I'm forgiven, I'm saved, I'm loved. I'm alive. God's grace alone did that. Chris, when I stand in front of God one day, if he says, you tell me, why well, should let you in here? I promise you, I will not hold up a resume and say, check this out. How much time do you have, God, to hear everything that I did for you? God forbid. I just want to hold up a picture of the cross and say, this is why you should let me in here. Not because I did a thing, but because of what Jesus did for me. The only thing... The only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin. The only thing that I contributed to my salvation was my deadness. That is not for dramatic effect. <laughs> Although, speaking of death, it does remind me of the old-timey funeral homes. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That smelled weird and had the strange lighting. Welcome to the parlor, Davey. <laughs> Sorry for your loss. Listen, it's grace alone, plus nothing. I'm not worried about being in a casket one day under weird lighting because I've already been resurrected. Death is never going to touch me. I'm just going to relocate one day. No fear in life. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Grace alone plus nothing. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was so dead as if there's varying levels of it, but I was so dead, only God could make me alive. I was so blind, only God could give me sight. I was so helpless, only God could save me. I was so sinful, only God himself could forgive me. I was so helpless that only God, only God could change me. There was nothing in me, nothing in me worth saving. And there's nothing in you worth saving. If there's something that makes us worth it, then we're not saved by grace alone. And if it's not grace alone, it's not grace, is it? So why did Jesus do it? Why did he give his life? To save us from our sin. Ephesians 2. Back to Ephesians 2 verse 7. So that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Ultimately, it's not about us. Ultimately, it's about him, his glory, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Mephibosheth got in because of Jonathan. You and I get in because of Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And one day, Scotty, we're going to be walking around heaven, man, and we're going to be looking around, and all we're going to see is the grace of God. I mean, we like to talk a whole lot about, man, I can't wait till I meet David. I can't wait till I get to meet Moses. I can't wait till I get to meet Abraham. Well, let me remind you, there was nothing in them worth him saving either. They're not all that either. And when you rub shoulders with those great men and women, we call them great. But when we meet them in heaven one day, you're not going to see their greatness. You're going to see the grace of God. They're there the same way you got there, in the same way that I'll be there. Sola gratia. Grace alone. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. Because if it's not alone, then it's something other than grace. And I've always loved telling that story of Mephibosheth. My children probably heard it today for the first time. Although I've told it gazillions of times. But there's another story in the Bible that really is more similar to my story than that story. And it's in the New Testament. It's in John chapter 11. Jesus had a friend. His name was Lazarus. And Lazarus had died. And according to Lazarus' sisters, Jesus was taking his ever-loving time to get there to the funeral. He didn't make it on time. He was on time, but just by their standards, right? Some of y'all think today God's late right now, something in your life. He's not. He's right on time. It just feels late sometimes. Four days Lazarus had been dead. I mean, they had already put up the, you know, the yellow tape over the stone in front of the tomb, like don't come any closer because the smell is going to knock you down, kind of dead. So Jesus gets there, his friend Martha, Lazarus' sister, is not too pleased. Jesus starts having this conversation, John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen, church, you've got to understand, the resurrection is not an event, it's a person. Jesus, he is the resurrection. And the life. He says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. <laughs> even after dying. I got to hear something recently I've never heard in my life. I heard my dad preach somebody's funeral. We, we did that together. It was a real pleasure to get to have that opportunity with my dad. And This isn't in my notes, it just occurred to me, but my dad read a Billy Graham quote in his part of the service, and Dr. Graham said, one day you'll hear that Dr. Graham is dead, but don't you believe it for a minute, because in that moment I'll be more alive than I've ever been. So crank up the weird lights and the funky smells in the parlor, I ain't going to be there. 
He said, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Skip down to verse 40. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, listen, Baptists, there are good reasons to shout. I had this long pep talk with the first service today because I'm really sick and tired of, preacher, I about, I about shouted. I about, I about got happy. I about lifted my hands. I about got excited. I about got some joy in my heart. I'm so sick of the I abouts. I watch, I watch what we do on Saturday, me included. I, I, I'm at a football game acting like a fool because of my kid on Monday night, on Friday night. I act like my life depends on that 20-year-old catching that slant across the middle. And, man, we shout. We get loud. We get excited. I can stand here and start talking about football, and y'all get more excited than you do about Jesus. And, and, I, and when I, people always get offended when I start saying these things, you go, well, preacher, I don't worship like that. Yes, you do. It shows. You do worship that way. We see it every, every weekend. Or whatever your deal is, we do worship that way. We just worship the wrong things that way. Jesus is at this funeral, and he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man. Not the weak man, not the sick man, not the dying man. Jesus didn't go, yes, I see that hand behind that rock in that tomb. Yes, yet no, dead. The dead man came out. His feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. See, that's my story. There was a moment in my life that in my deadness, Jesus spoke. He called my name. It was grace alone. He's doing that a lot around here lately, and I'm so thankful for that. Come here, two young ladies. Haley, Natalie, y'all come on. Terry, I think you're baptizing. You come on with them. Y'all come on back here. No, you stay with me, Terry, because me and you don't even get in the water anymore. Hallelujah, because after last week in the lake, y'all. Got some deacons that'll... Come here, where are y'all going, girls? Come this way. Shortcut. <laughs> We're going right through this door right over here. And you're going to see these girls in a moment follow the Lord in baptism. You know what that is? We were dead in our sin. We were dead like Lazarus dead. But then Jesus called our name. And now we're alive. And we're going to celebrate that for these two young ladies in just a moment. We were dead, buried in our sin. Listen, we no more contribute to our salvation than Lazarus contributed to his resurrection. It was all by God's grace. It's all for God's glory. God's grace and grace alone did that. God's grace and grace alone raised him up. God's grace and grace alone saved me. And it will be today for you, God's grace and God's grace alone that raises you up. 
I've been praying this week that anybody that's in this place today that needs Jesus would be raised to life today. And that's why people get baptized to say, that's what Jesus has done for me. That's not Jesus doing that for me. It is He's done that for me. He's raised me. He's resurrected me now. I'm alive. I once was dead. Now I'm alive. I once was blind, but now I see. I have a place at the table because His grace is greater. God, we bow before you today amazed by your extravagant grace. And God, I pray today that if there's somebody here that's never trusted you, Jesus, that in this moment right now, God, that you're raising them to life. Holy Spirit, you're at work drawing men and women to life in Jesus today. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, listen, today, if you're hearing the Lord, I don't mean with your ears, but there's just something in your heart. You just know God's doing something. I believe God's raising me up today. He wants me to know him. He wants me to be saved. He wants me to live. I'm not quite sure, pastor, what to do with that. So here's the deal. When we start to sing in just a moment, I will help you. I'll be standing right here. As long as it takes, I will help you know that you know Jesus today before you leave this place. There's nothing else on my calendar today that's more important than that. If you have another prayer need today and you need a pastor to pray with you, I'm not sure that any are in here, but Derek's over here to my left. Derek, I'm gonna ask you to stand over here to my left. Jeremiah, you're over here to my right. If you'll stand over here. If you you just need a, a person to pray with you today, listen, they're there, but listen, I want, to, I want to make myself available to somebody today that needs to trust Christ, okay? I want to pray for your other needs, but allow me to do that at another time. I want to be just designated in this moment for those who need to know that they know Jesus today. So Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Wherever there is death and sin, would you conquer it today in a personal way? As you draw people to life in Jesus, raise them up today, God. Raise them up. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand and let's sing. Let's worship the Lord. If I can help you, come on. I want you to know Jesus today. These men beside me, they'd be honored to pray with you today. If you just want to come pray alone today, you can do that. You want to stand there and worship where you are from the bottom of your feet to the tips of your fingers today, then get after it because this is who's really worthy of our worship.